Hello, can I please speak with Samantha Rose Hill? Hi, Paul. Samantha, I'm very well. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I'd like all of our listeners to know that it has taken us forever. I've had, I'm not a particularly a son of modernity. And I must say, it has been so hard to connect with you. Um, I've had all kinds of technological problems. But perseverance and the desire to speak to you has mm. actually prevailed. So tell me, Samantha, I'm, I'm so happy you're part of the quarantine tapes presented by Dublab and Onassis LA. Tell me, Samantha, how have you been living these last 11 months of this delirious period? Well, first, thank you so much for your persistence Endless. and desire. <laughs> Um, and thank you for the invitation. I have been in quarantine for almost a year now, which is surprising, alone in the middle of the woods in upstate New York, in Germantown, surrounded by my trees and books. So Your trees. It's been, <laughs> well, I, I, at this point, I feel like I know each of them personally. I see them every day. I see trees much more often than people. It's been it's been quiet and nourishing and joyful, which is really a kind of cognitive disjunction with what's happening in the rest of the world right now. Does the joyful part make you feel I don't know if the word guilty would be right, but I I I, I take it from what you just said. Um, with cognitive dissonance, that something is, you, you feel that there's something wrong with feeling that way. And and might I add that I read a beautiful, beautiful entry you wrote 11 months ago on April 20th, 2020. It's a beautiful entry that you wrote, which is called The World As It Is. And you write the following. Annandale on Hudson, New York. I've been thinking about Hannah Arendt's reflection that what is most difficult is to love the world as it is with all the evil and suffering in it. So I want to go back in a way 10 months or 11 months in time to the moment when you wrote that and perhaps ask you, Samantha, how you feel about that now. You wrote that then, and 11 months have passed. And Hannah Arendt, as we will discover, is ever so present in your life. You, you corrected me. You said dissonance, and I think I said disjunction. And I, it's a kind of interesting slip, I think. And also, there's a kind of you know lack of 
correspondence between the world I find myself in and the world that I I see my family inhabiting right now. And that's that's what I was thinking about when I wrote that entry for the point. I was kind of overwhelmed in the immediacy of the moment and the newness of what was happening. And I actually don't like to write that way. I think it is going to take a long time to process and think through everything that has happened and changed in the past year. But I was kind of turning that aren't quote around and when when she talks about Amor Mundi, when she talks about loving the world, she's talking about a way of, of thinking and judging and seeing the world as it is and not subscribing to some kind of idealized version of reality that may never exist or come into existence or a nostalgic past for that matter. And what I what I was thinking about was the fact that there are so many worlds in this world Mm. and I think that that is what became apparent to me in in that moment and realizing that I was incredibly fortunate and blessed to have this beautiful house in the middle of the woods where I could wait out this time and kind of do my civic duty of staying away from other people Um, but you know, my, my, my mother, my father, my sister couldn't in another state and they each have had different quarantines as so many of us have. It's such a candid piece. So, um, are you saying you, you, you don't usually write such pieces, meaning pieces which are so, so candidly autobiographical, but There was also in that piece, which I will definitely include so that people can read it after listening to us, because it's beautifully, beautifully written. Do you you mean you you don't usually want to write pieces where your own family story is revealed, though it is revealed also, might I say, with a a substantial amount of restraint? I, I don't usually do that. I wasn't thinking about it that way. But no, I don't usually write about myself or my family. And I also meant that, you know, they had asked me to write kind of what what I was going through and what I was thinking about. And I had originally thought about writing something about time or something about um, waiting or Benjamin or Arendt and... And I realized I couldn't, that the only thing I could write about was what was happening in my life. And I hoped when I, I wrote it that if nothing else, it would perhaps offer some people a bit of solidarity. Offer solidarity, and yet you, you speak very interestingly about the impossible hum of spring, which is upon us again. And yeah. and your and your your skepticism of a certain rhetoric of hope, and I'm wondering mm. whether you can address that. 
And also address <laughs> how that very first sentence of Hannah Arendt, which I'll reread, is what is most difficult is to love the world as it is, with all the evil and suffering in it. How that resonates with you, Samantha, now, nearly a year after the outbreak of this pandemic? Well, <laughs> you're, you're picking up on a lot there. For a long time, my personal motto, which I would always repeat, was embrace despair, emphasis on the embrace, and thinking about despair in the kind of Hegelian sense of split consciousness and the discrepancy between the world we live in and the world we might like to live in sometimes. So by embracing despair, we might better come to see the world as it is. But I, I have to, I haven't actually said this out loud yet, but it's something I've been thinking about is I'm having second thoughts about my motto uh -huh. after the past year. And I, I like, I was going back to Arendt's preface the first preface to the origins of totalitarianism when it was published in 1951. And she frames it a bit differently. She writes against radical hope and radical despair. Mm -hmm. And that, that seems more tempered to me. I've often been wary of hope. Hope implies a great many things that may or may not exist on some future temporal horizon. And I think at least for most of my life, the future simply didn't exist. And so I inhabited a kind of present or now. And I was allergic in a way to an idea of hope, even though I had spent a great deal of time organizing on the left and doing certain political work, which entailed a kind of hope. I was never quite certain about it. I think when Arendt says that the most difficult thing to love the world with all the evil and suffering in it, it actually she, she writes that in a letter to Carl Jaspers, uh, who was her dissertation advisor and a very dear friend. And she is writing him a letter about mourning, mourning the loss of Hermann Brock, who was a magnificent poet whom she was close to. And she She had this melancholy task of writing an introduction to one of his books. And she says, only so now, this late in life, have I come to really understand that loving the world means you have to see the good and the bad. And it's not hope or despair, not radical hope or radical despair, but planting your feet on the ground and seeing what's in front of you. You know, it's, it reminded me of, of a wonderful moment where Junot Diaz quotes uh, the philosopher Jonathan Lear, and he says mm. something like, what I'm trying to cultivate is not blind optimism, but what Jonathan mm -hmm. Lear calls a form of radical hope. And I think he says what makes this hope radical, as it were, is that it is directed towards a future goodness that transcends the current ability to understand what it is. And I'm wondering if in some way it's connected yeah. to that. Well, it is. 
is, and it's that. But the the word there, the tell, and I, I like I like Lear, um, but the the tell there is is some future good, and uh, one of one of the lines of Arendt, who I can never fully get out of my head, is that you know. <laughs> We we constantly demand more, 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 better, better, better. The future will always be better. The good exists in the future. And to do that is to overlook the good, the mm. good now, maybe what I want to call the kind of form of the good that can so enrich our lives. And I don't I don't think that forecloses the hope that, you know, we might say we might live in a more equal society or a more just society. But it is to allow us to live in the moment where we are in a way where the good can exist and is not foreclosed. I, I think I need to tell our listeners that the reason Hannah Arendt is coming up <laughs> and will again and again and again is that you have just, as I understand it, completed a study which might be a biography, but I imagine it's much more than that, of Hannah Arendt, which is coming out during this calendar year, sometime in the summer. And you're yeah. also the, the director or the assistant director of the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College. Uh, therefore, in some way, Hannah Arendt sentences sort of uh, lurk in your mind, whether you like it or not. You've been living with her for quite some time, and you wrote this beautiful essay again about loneliness, and you've made yourself into a scholar of loneliness, which could be perceived as slightly perverse in these times, <laughs> in these times when we are just so terribly lonely um, during this pandemic. You, you wrote an essay called Where Loneliness Can Lead, and naturally... It begins with a quotation by Hannah Arendt, which I will read and then ask you to comment upon. What prepares hmm. men for totalitarian domination in the non-totalitarian world is the fact that loneliness, once a borderline experience, usually suffered in certain marginal social conditions like old age, has become an everyday experience. I'm I'm curious about that. I'm not sure I I completely ascribe to that, but hmm. obviously for you it is tremendously meaningful and very important. So I'd love I'd love you to unpack that a little bit. No, I'm curious why you may or may not subscribe uh, subscribe to it. Um I I mean personally I'm not sure I do either. Uh -huh. I'm um, curious why but, you don't. <laughs> I I think it is a very important idea for our and understanding totalitarianism and the human condition under totalitarianism. So she writes Origins, which is this great 600-page book. It's really three books in one, and then she gets to the last. 10 pages and she's talked about all these different elements of totalitarianism the privatization of public institutions imperialism colonialism racism and she gets to the very end and she says loneliness the sentence 
you just read is the underlying condition of all totalitarian movements because it does it transforms this everyday experience of loneliness she's talking about what she calls organized loneliness yeah which is not the way that i think you are and you and i would understand loneliness colloquially she doesn't really have an affective account of the experience of loneliness and thinking about what the experience of loneliness is the word that she uses for it um she steals from nietzsche's zarathustra is uh, for lassenheit which means uh, a sense of abandonment and so loneliness organized loneliness for her is connected to the sense of rootlessness in the world and very much isolation when she's talking about organized loneliness she's talking about how people are isolated from one another in their thinking. And the way that we understand loneliness has changed dramatically. Samantha, take <laughs> us on the journey of that word, because you do so beautifully. And I'd like, I'd like for listeners to, to travel with you through the, the various iterations, permutations of the word loneliness when it goes from isolation to loneliness, to solitude. I'm always reminded uh, p quite poignantly of Marianne Moore's great line, mm. uh, the great poet Marianne Moore, who said, the cure for loneliness is solitude. So mm. the floor is yours, Samantha. Well, I I disagree with Marianne Moore. Um, mm. I like her. I disagree with that quote. <laughs> um, there is no cure for loneliness. Working backwards, I mean, today loneliness is practically synonymous with social isolation. And I think there's really something lost in that. You know, loneliness is a much sexier word than the kind of brute fact of those social isolation. And certainly social isolation can give rise to feelings of loneliness and the experience of loneliness and also anxiety and depression and a number of other moods and, and feelings. And, but loneliness is part of the human condition. Loneliness is something that everybody experiences from time to time. And when I'm teaching classes on understanding loneliness, I always tell my students that if they didn't experience loneliness, then something might be wrong. I think it's a reminder of the fact that we are connected to other human beings. Um, one of my favorite expressions of that is actually in Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Experience, which is a lament for the death of his son. And he says of his son, I, I can't get him nearer to me. And it's an acknowledgement of that space that exists between us. And loneliness is social. You know, we can feel lonely when we're surrounded by the people we care about the most. Um, aren't as loneliness is felt most sharply in the company of others. Mm -hmm. But loneliness um, was coined by Shakespeare, not not surprisingly, uh, probably. Um, and one of the first uses is in is in Hamlet, and it was in the 16th and 17th century, it was usually connected with God 
or a longing for God or to create fear of hell in churchgoers by reminding them of lonely places like the grave. And then it changes in modernity with Edgar Allan Poe, with the rise of modern mass society, with Kennedy, crowds and power, Reisman. And then it changes again in the 20th century. And the way that we talk about loneliness, at least, has changed alongside the historical and material conditions of time. Are you, are you trying to say to me that loneliness, as we understand it now, is nowhere to be found in the ancient Greeks? One of the first examples of loneliness that I think of actually is the first time Odysseus speaks in the Odyssey, and he's being thrashed in the waves by Poseidon, and he stares up at the heavens and cries out to God, you know, why? And then, <laughs> and then he's, he's rescued by Calypso <laughs> and held hostage. Well, that's a, we can play with that, but for seven years. And I think that's one of the first examples of, of loneliness, at least the way I think about it, that I've been able to find. Is there an example in Greek literature that came to your mind? No, I, I, I just was wondering because, you know, your essay does such a, such a magnificent job, as I was saying before, of, of taking us not really through the etymology, but, uh, but through the history of loneliness. And loneliness, as it were, has a history and to come yeah. back to come back to Arendt I was very interested in the way in which she she in some way connects loneliness uh, to uh, totalitarianism and I'm 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 and 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 believes as she says that in in some way it was a, an experience that wasn't experienced uh, so often It was a borderline experience, as she says, a marginal yeah. experience, and I, I, I really wonder, in a way, if that is, if that is correct, or if indeed the language of loneliness has made us more aware of a certain way we we feel. And and your your essay is is filled with with interesting references. I could read twenty five quotations as. My, li my listeners well know uh, so many come to mind that are actually included in your essay, but one that isn't, which I think speaks mm. to Hannah Arendt, is an, a, a, a small little moment where Anthony Burgess says, to be left alone is the most precious thing one can ask for of the modern world. And I'm wondering, in the context of Arendt, how that might resonate with you her biographer? Well, Arendt certainly liked to be left alone. <laughs> It was necessary um, for her process as a writer and scholar. So if we go back to the idea um, that, that solitude, maybe solitude is the other side of loneliness. Um, if solitude is a kind of state of pleasurably keeping company with ourselves alone 
loneliness is, right. a, is a different experience right. of calling right. ourselves into question. And so for Arendt, the other side of loneliness is that is the, that necessity to be able to retreat from the glare of public life within the four walls of the home into the private, to be alone with oneself and to engage in what she describes as the two-in-one dialogue of thinking where one can engage in a conversation with themselves um, as a space and thinking for the self-consciousness. Which is wonderful, wonderful. I, I love how she says somewhere in solitude, a dialogue always, always arises right. because yeah. even in solitude, there are always two. And sometimes more. <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you can have a party. <laughs> Precisely. And you never know who's going to appear. Yeah. Uh, she was fond of, it's actually a, a misquote. Um, she ends the human condition with that, you know, never is one less alone with them than they are by themselves. Um, is that the Cicero quotation? Yeah. Yes. Is, yeah. is, it, is, it a, is it a false attribution? It is a false attribution, and I'm not going to remember what the correct. No, but but you would you would right you would know at least that it's false. And I I know that there, <laughs> there is that there is that wonderful Terry Eagleton, Eagleton yeah. essay about loneliness where he's re reviewing David Vincent, and he says that David Vincent says that the neatest definition of loneliness is failed mm. solitude, and I'm I'm mm. I'm wondering is it. I mean, as a scholar of loneliness, Samantha, is, is, does that ring true to you? I think it can be. I don't think it is. Mm. Um, mm. So, so I spent, the, the, I went to quarantine on March 12th. And on March with the 12th. exception of, on March yes. 12th. I went on quarantine <laughs> on March 13th. I mean, we all have, oh. these, we all have these dates uh. engraved in our minds, don't we? Yes. But tell, yeah. tell me, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, no. I, I've been. I, I was making a list of the dates the other day. Um, they are engraved. As you would. Um, but I have spent the the better part, with the exception of a few weeks in August, alone, completely alone, in my solitude with in the your, middle of the woods. With your trees. Weeks, with with my trees, weeks and weeks on end, and it is beautiful and and wonderful and i'm extremely introverted and i love to spend time alone and i need to spend a lot of time alone but solitude can give way to loneliness it can but not it's not loneliness isn't failed solitude i mean i really think that it's important it's now more than ever maybe to depathologize loneliness um, you know, we are quick to ascribe it, um, all of these negative um, adjectives. And, you know, I think Tom Wolfe wrote a wonderful essay on loneliness. I think it was in the 70s. And he calls loneliness his comrade. He had an entirely different vocabulary for the way that he was thinking about loneliness as a friend who would appear out of nowhere. And instead of trying to run away from it, to escape it, um, cure it, um, you know, 
reassigning meaning to it, acknowledging it for what it is as something that doesn't have to be so devastating. I, I feel a silence here, um, and I was thinking about everything you were saying, and, and we could continue on the subject, and maybe we will come back to it. But let me take you out of your loneliness and bring you back to dates that precede March 12th, when Samantha was enthralled and completely absorbed, deliciously so, by be, by going and being in archives. Oh. <laughs> I want you to talk a little bit about that feeling of excitement, of tactile inebriation you oh. felt when you were in the midst of Hannah Arendt's archives. And take us on a journey. I asked you to take us on a journey of the word. Now I ask you to take us on a journey of tracking down Hannah Arendt and her friends and her enemies, her friends Benjamin and her enemies Adorno and others. I miss, I miss visiting archives so much. Um, that's been, it's been a loss this past year and I've been incredibly grateful to all of the archivists who have been willing to send me documents and go digging for me. Um, because I haven't been able to, I, I, I think I discovered archives. I think I discovered kind of fell in love with archives in 2009 or 2010. I was, I was actually living in Washington DC and I was kind of writing my dissertation and doing kind of. 10 other things. And I, and I realized Arendt's papers were right there, that they were at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. And I was writing my dissertation on Arendt and Benjamin and Adorno. And so I wrote to Jerome Cohn, who's just the most marvelous man in the world, and he stands guard over Arendt's work. And he's responsible for most of the posthumously published um, volumes that we have. And I asked him for permission. I wasn't quite sure how to enter the archives. And I, I, I was afraid I would, I would get there and, and they would kind of laugh at me. The door would be closed, <laughs> a bit like Kay arriving, huh. like a Kafka moment. Yes, yes. There'd be some large man on a chair in a fur coat who would, who would, who would tell me to keep coming back. And, and I would. So I went, I went meekly in I got my card and I took my letter printed of course to the archivist at the desk and kind of looked at me and shook his head and <laughs> said fill out this card and I'll bring you those boxes pick a table I had no idea what to expect um, and I think it's you know Derrida and archive fever talk, does talk about the etymology of, of archive as as a house, as a kind of dwelling space. And I really felt like I was breaking and entering. Like I had, you know, climbed into some kind of window I had jimmied open and that I had to cover my tracks and be be as quiet as possible. And I was afraid somebody was just going to come over and kind of take everything away from me. I still feel that. Mm -hmm. But I was working through Arendt's papers 
and I was in correspondence folder AB. And, and this was really the, the moment for me when I realized what archival research might be and, and what it could do and how it might change the way that we think about thinkers that we've only encountered on the page in a book. And I, I opened this folder and there was this gorgeous, bright, colored strip of paper with this very fine, very tiny, neat black handwriting. My heart stopped and I, I started shaking and, and I knew, I knew what it was. And I, and I thought about whether or not I should touch it. <laughs> I, I, cause I just didn't feel like I had the right. And I, and I, I picked, I picked up these newspaper bands. It was Walter Benjamin's handwritten theses on the philosophy of history that he had entrusted to Hannah Arendt and Marseille a few days before he attempted to escape. And, and once I, once I started touching them, <laughs> I realized that I could. And I went, I, I went to the archivist and I asked him if I could, if I could make copies. And he he looked at them, not knowing what they were, shook his head and said, sure, do whatever you want. And I, and I start yelling at him. <laughs> you can't make copies of these. These should not be here. Um, but I, you know, you shouldn't get me talking about archives, Paul. I, I, I think I'll have you talk about them more, Samantha. You, you write this beautiful piece about... Um, Benjamin's last days, um, really the moment just leading to what probably was his suicide in, in Porbou on a date which mm. we don't quite know, but probably the 26th or 27th or 28th, depending on, on how you see it or who you are writing about it in 1940 in Porbou, uh, right at the border between France and Spain. And there's a be mm. beautiful monument to, to Benjamin. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, by, I have not. Oh, by Dani Caravan, where you, you go underground half and and the, one of the pieces is written on on the glass and you see the Mediterranean. Um, it was a beautiful day mm. when I went. You see the Mediterranean and you have a feeling that you you could reach out to freedom, but you don't. And you write this beautiful essay about Benjamin's, what, what leads up to Benjamin's suicide, but more importantly, how the papers um, that he, he entrusted have been handled badly or well by Adorno and, mm. and, um, and Hannah Arendt and others, uh, depending on, on your point of view, and, and you say this, which I loved. You, you whisper into our ears the following. You say, even today, I'm handing them over to you. This is Benjamin speaking to Hannah Arendt. More as a bouquet of whispering grasses gathered on reflective walks than a collection of ceases. I'd like you to unpack that beautiful moment and maybe make that whisper a little bit more audible. It is beautiful. And 
um, poignant and melancholic, I think. Uh, he wrote that to Greta Ladorno. Oh, I got that who, wrong. I got that completely wrong. Who he entrusted his papers with as well. He, then you mean, um, was always a bit, I'm sure as you know, anxious about his papers and his work. And so he would, he would make um, hand copies and, and send them to Gershom Sholem in Israel, to George Bataille, to Greta Ladorno, to Hona Arendt. And that's in part why there are so many versions of the theses. But it's um, a bouquet of whispering. I mean, he carried this book, this collection of fragments, around with him for more than 20 years, working them over, turning them over, attending to them. And there are so many different ways, I think, to read the theses, which have always been a favorite text of mine. Um, You can certainly just open them, read them in a kind of meditation. You You can read them politically and the differences between historicism and historical materialism. And the the versions that we have, um, he wrote after he was released from the Nevers internment camp and returned to Paris for a few months before um, going to Lourdes um, and then Marseille trying to escape. And I've and I've never, I haven't, I think that's still something that I'm turning over. You know, you see, you see it in his handwriting. You see the intensity and the immediacy and the passion and the sensuality and the color. And there's so much life, I think, in those in those theses, it it is a bouquet, and and an offering. It's an offering. And that tiny, tiny handwriting, um, which Hannah Arendt reflects on, partly because the uh, the wandering Jew can't really be a collector. And 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 you say you well, say, he didn't have paper, right? He didn't have paper, which is another 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 thing you bring to to bear. But even before, his handwriting was always. So careful and so small, he wanted to put the yeah. Sholem says the Shema Israel on a on a on a, <laughs> on, a, on a grain of rice, but uh, as it had been done in the muse- in the Cluny Museum. But you know the int- the interest in in that is so so so. Um, I think it's so interesting to think about that moment of calamity and crisis in the crisis in which we find ourselves. Not to make. Uh, you know, a comparison between then, then and now, but you write in that fine essay of yours, you say, we cannot turn back to see the future, but we can look back to see Walter Benjamin's work in order to think about our present moment. And I'm wondering, you know, in this moment, how you think about this present moment, knowing so much about Benjamin and Hannah Arendt and the whole Frankfurt School, really? Well, I think... There's a number of different, I think, ways to think about that. Benjamin ends 
the theses by talking about how the Jewish people are prohibited from investigating the future, mm-hmm. not being able to look into the future and, and about the possibility that at any moment in time, the Messiah might enter. But the essay is also, uh, well, I really shouldn't call it an essay. The theses mm-hmm. are also a meditation on how the history of progress is coupled with a, a history of barbarism. And Benjamin, at least for me, has always attuned me to think about the present, not in terms of linear historical time, but in order to become more observant, to pay attention to the various elements that exist. And no, we don't live in a totalitarian regime and we don't live in a fascist country. And now, thankfully, with Donald Trump out of the picture, the the specter of fascism at least seems a little further away than it was a few months ago. But that doesn't mean that there aren't certain elements of fascism, or I want to say social disease, that exist in our society. I think I would need to, I would need to think about it a bit more what Benny Mean might have to say about our present moment right now. I think part of my reticence is, is, is a bit of an unwillingness to try and compare this interminable moment we're in with the kind of time he found himself in. Delicately so, and one one shouldn't. And I try to make that clear. But your, your, I think your your reticence is correct here. I want to take you a bit further away from your solitude, to to <laughs> perhaps um, uh, tell our listeners what what Samantha has been up to, quite apart from being with her her trees. Um, you've been teaching furiously yeah. on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> You've been teaching furiously on Zoom uh, a dozen courses, I, I counted, yeah. um, not only at Bard, but also at an institute called the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. And I'd love our listeners to know the kind of courses you've been uh, teaching. And also, how do you, as a scholar of loneliness and, of course, of Hannah Arendt and Benjamin and others, find this experience of Zoom? I, I once heard recently someone say, cogito ergo Zoom. How do you, how do you find this experience of uh, you know, being uh, uh, socially distant, as it were, uh, in a classroom? Uh, has it offered you certain pleasures that teaching in person doesn't or... Has it been a good experience? And perhaps you can uh, answer that question by also revealing for our listeners what it is you're trying to instruct your students to do. I like the trying in there. Um, yes, I've been teaching a lot, a, a lot, a lot more than usual in the past year. Um, so the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research is an independent research institute that offers classes to anybody who's interested. Our classes are four weeks and we offer them in almost every time zone now. 
Um, but it started in New York City I think eight or nine years ago. So I've been teaching for them for six or seven years. And I was teaching a course on sadomasochism at Artbook. Goodness me. <laughs> in Manhattan. <laughs> Uh, when when the pandemic began, when we went into lockdown, yes, I know it's a, it's a wonderful course title. It's 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 actually um, it is a course about uh, economies of desire and sadomasochism, and it's really a course on dialectics and dialectics of power. Um, and so we had had one course meeting in person and as you might imagine from the subject material it's a kind of intimate class space and I certainly try to cultivate an, an environment where everybody is comfortable um, and feels free to openly engage with the often sensitive material that we're reading and and then we went into lockdown and so and what do people, I had what to, do people read <laughs> in that class and what do they do <laughs> Well, we start with Hegel. Of course. Yes. Well, you, you know, a few students often walk out on the, on the first day of that class when, <laughs> when I hand them Hegel. It's not quite what they're hoping for. Um, but we start with the master-slave dialectic and the phenomenology of spirit. Um, and then Bataille's critique of Hegel in his work on Madame Eduarda and the story of the eye and some of his other writings on sod. We read Deleuze's beautiful essay, Coldness and Cruelty, um, and Van Sacramassock's Venus and Furs. We read Sod's Juliet. We read Adorno and Horkheimer on Juliet, Lacan on Sod. And then the sort of end of the class, I change depending upon who shows up in the classroom um, in the last um, version of the class, I ended up teaching a bit of Garth Greenwell's new work, um, which is a bit more contemporary kind of fiction writing, which includes some BDSM play. But I mean, there's a lot to say about the class. I've been teaching it for a few years um, and it's, it's a wonderful kind of open discussion space. And we usually dedicate last 20 or 30 minutes to talking about the practical things as it were um but i so i've been teaching that i taught a course on pornography i taught a course on understanding loneliness and i've been teaching a lot of hannah arendt the human condition thinking the problem of evil and eichmann and and how to 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 come to the other part i mean Goodness me, I, I, I imagine that, <laughs> that some of our listeners might join your classes after hearing this, um, uh, despite Hegel. What I was wondering is, how has this experience been yeah. for you from going from the in-person uh, space, no. which you've created, as you said, comfortably, to um, the space that everybody around, really around the world now knows, whether it is high school students or kindergarten students or college or postgraduate students, which is uh, this experience at a distance on a screen when so much of our uh, attempt as educators has been to get students, at least some of us, a little bit more away from their screens. Yes. 
Yes, well, that, that's certainly true. So it's it's been it's been an adventure, and I've had a number of interesting experiences. So I had taught one class in person for the sadomasochism course, and then the next week we had to transition to a Zoom space, and, and nobody quite knew what was going on, um, and. I, you know, open my computer and I I turn on Zoom. It's the first Zoom class I'm teaching in the pandemic. And every single person in the class has their camera off. Every single person is muted. And I'm, I'm going on and on. I talked for three hours about Saad and Kant and, and reading to them. And, and, you know, it was, I don't want to say it was like speaking to a brick wall because that has too many other resonances for me, but it was like speaking into a void. Right. It was like speaking into this great abyss of nothingness. And and I, I felt like I was performing somehow, and it very much did not feel like teaching, although teaching is always a performance of some sort. But I I thought about it. I, I talked to a few people, and other people had had the same kind of experience because at the at the very beginning there wasn't really an etiquette to it yeah you didn't know no nobody nobody knew what they were doing and so then everyone turned their cameras on and it was it was fine and it it it, it worked and it's a different pedagogy and the next the next class i taught and and since then they've all been on zoom was actually on understanding loneliness and it was, it had been scheduled before the pandemic, and I had taught it before, and it, it suddenly felt very timely. Our conversations were much different than they might have been a year ago. One of my students actually lost her husband to COVID during the course of the class. It was a, it was a space for loneliness. It was also a space for mourning and grief. But what I've seen teaching on Zoom is that people find a way to connect with each other mm. and you, you see them making faces at each other or kind of laughing and whatever inside joke they've exchanged in the chat that you can't see. <laughs> there, it, there, there's a way in which they're passing notes. They're passing notes. They are passing notes. I've also taken a number of classes in the past year, and I can I can confirm that the students are you, passing you, notes. You two pass them. <laughs> yeah, of course. No, but it's been it's been a way to create it's been a way to create community. The the part about it that I, I really love the most is you know when it, when the pandemic started, we the Brooklyn Institute weren't too sure what was going to happen to us, and a lot of students dropped out of the courses that were going on when everything began. But since it just has flourished and we have classes in almost every time zone in London and LA, I had students in a class on the origins of totalitarianism from India, Brazil, Argentina, California. So, so interesting. I mean, I mean, it was amazing. And the, and the, and the reactions must be so different um uh, so that that Aren speaks to them in a different language um, yes. in in one way what what this pandemic has offered is a 
a certain form of cosmopolitanism in teaching that um, yes. you wouldn't have had at Bard College. <laughs> no, certainly not. <laughs> no, but it's true. I mean, teaching origins, and you have students who are connecting her work to Modi's regime in India or Bolsonaro's regime in Brazil, and they're, they're staying up until three or four o'clock in the morning Incredible. to be Incredible. here in this space. It is, and it's it's so heartening that pe- this is how people want to spend their time. Well, they want to. They 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 want to, as you were saying. They need they need to connect. And you know, I I always love quoting this line of of, mm. Ad, of Adam Phillips, a psychoanalyst mm. I, I much admire, who says, "You you can't tickle yourself." Yeah, you need, we we need others, and 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 we have others yeah. now in that form. And since I mentioned Adam Phillips, um, in closing, sadly, mm-hmm. might I ask, uh, might I add, Samantha, mm-hmm. I, I there's a line of of Winnicott, the psychoanalyst, oh. the English psychoanalyst, I, I I admire greatly in a short essay of his, which has this magnificent title called The Contribution of Mothers to Society, he says something, Hmm. and I might not be quoting it completely correctly, it comes to my mind as I'm speaking to you, inspired by our conversation. He says that the goal is for the child to be alone in the presence of the mother, which to my mind has always been the single best definition of reading. Oh, well, I must have had a very good mother. Samantha, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. A real pleasure. Pleasure thank, thank, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm sorry it took such a such an effort, but I think, no, no, no. Thank you so much. But I think we've been rewarded. Thank you so much. Yeah. Take precious thank care. Bye bye. Bye, Paul. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com/support.